0: Well, hello and welcome everyone. It is really fantastic to welcome you back to another episode of our Tough Question series. And today we are going to look at a question on the providence of God. And specifically, the question of, is God really sovereign? In other words, is He really in control? And do we have free will? And, and if both of those two ideas are true, how do they manage to coexist together? Um, if God is fully sovereign, how can I be sure that my actions have meaning? That I'm not just a puppet like playing out moves in the matrix. If God has determined my actions, how can I still be morally responsible for them? So as you can see, this is, this is a pretty serious question. And so in answering it, we're going to break, break it down into a collection of manageable chunks and deal with them one at a time. So, so here's the roadmap that we're going to follow. Firstly, we're going to make sure that we understand the different terms that we're using and exactly what those words mean and what we mean by them. Then we're going to take some time to look at the scripture because that's incredibly important. And we're going to see what the scriptures teach into each of those ideas. And then I'm going to suggest a solution that I believe brings these two ideas together. God's sovereignty and our free will and how they interact and uh, work together. But before we do that... We need to start with a caveat, right? That is to say, I need to frame the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, and just like in every topic in this series, this is, a, this is a talk where we're going to attempt as mankind to understand God in who He is and what He does. This is, this is about the finite attempting to understand the infinite. And nowhere is that deficiency Seen more clearly than in the question we're wrestling with today. The sovereign governance of God over all things. In this question, the difference between us and God becomes most abundantly clear. The difference between what a finite mind can comprehend and manage and produce versus what an infinite mind is capable of. And so as we answer this question, we need to recognize that we are attempting to understand something that goes beyond the bounds of what our minds are capable of doing. So we need to resist the temptation to think that because we don't fully understand it, therefore it can't be true. Right? Those two things don't logically follow because we're attempting to understand something that's above and beyond us. Right? This is outside of our pay grade, but we're going to make a good effort, I promise. Secondly, the other part of this caveat that I want to leave us with is that in answering this question, we need to be prepared to endure a level of cognitive dissonance. Right? I know those are big words for some of us. Right? Cognitive dissonance is the mental discomfort that we feel from being unable to fully reconcile a set of be- different beliefs in our minds. Right? So let me, let me unpack this. Maybe you, like me, you like eating meat. Right? You really enjoy a good steak every now and again, and you're not really prepared to give that up, uh, and nor do you have the resources to go to Woolies and buy the ultra-pampered, grain-fed, hot tub, bath, super legit steak. Right? You can't do that. But you would also, like me, prefer that animals be humanely treated, and you know that often the food that we eat, that, that's not always the case. Right. And so you find yourself in a space where you try not to think about where your food has come from, because if you did, you begin to feel a level of discomfort and uncertainty. Right. That's that's cognitive dissonance. And you value these two different things, and you're not sure exactly how to reconcile them. Right. And there's not always an obvious or clear solution. Right. As we consider the providence of God, We're going to see that God establishes the surety of His sovereignty and the reality of our free will. And it's more important for us to be able to affirm that those things are the clear teachings of Scripture than it is for us to be able to fully reconcile exactly how they coexist together. We need to be willing to embrace a little discomfort because our infinite God is able to understand things a little bit better than we care. And I would hope that's the case. Right? Otherwise, we're serving an inadequate God. All right, so let's jump in. Let's, let's just make sure we understand the terms that we're using as we wrestle with this question. Right? And, and I'm using the, the words sovereignty and providence a little bit interchangeably in the sermon. And that distinction is not super important for us today. But let's understand the difference between sovereignty and providence and free will. What do we mean by those different terms? Okay. So let's talk about firstly about the providence of God. The providence of God is a term that describes God's continuing His ongoing relationship with His creation. Right? So we define providence like this. We say it is the continuing action of God in preserving His creation and guiding it towards His intended purposes. It's the continuing action of God in preserving His creation and guiding it toward His intended purposes. As you can see, this definition has two parts. And we call them preservation and government. Preservation is the work of God whereby God maintains and sustains all of creation. Causing it to continue to function as He intends. So Paul writes in, one, in Colossians 1.17 for instance that in Him all things hold together. Things continue to be as they are because they are in God somehow. Right? That's God's work of preservation. Government is the work of God whereby He guides the course of events and actions of individuals so that they fulfill His intended purposes. It's the work of God whereby He guides the course of events and actions and the actions of individuals to fulfill His intended purposes. So Luke writes in Acts chapter 4 from 27 to 28, he says, Herod and Pontius Pilate, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. God had a plan. And in His governance, He caused the actions and events of individuals and people to come together for His intended purpose. Now, whilst providence encompasses both of these ideas, our questions relate more to the aspect of God's governance than to his work of preservation. So that's where we're going to be focusing our attention. On the actions of God, where he guides the course of events and the actions of individuals to fulfill his intended purposes. Right. Providence. Good. Let's do free will. Right. Like providence, free will is not per se a biblical term. That is to say, it's not a term that Scripture expressly uses itself. Rather, it's a concept that Scripture teaches, like Providence is. And just like Providence, we need to allow Scripture to describe and to provide the content of what this term means. Unfortunately, unlike Providence... Free will comes loaded with a lot of extra baggage, a set of expectations from outside that are not always in line with the teaching of Scripture on the freeness of our will. Okay. So let's unpack this. Biblical free will can be defined like this: it is the ability to make a choice that is not coerced or causally determined. In the first case, right? The ability to make a choice that is not coerced or causally determined. And is made between genuine alternatives. It's made between genuine alternatives. Let me make a couple of observations about this and unpack exactly what it means. I want you to notice the distinction between coercion and causal determination and influence. Scripture doesn't teach that humans are free from divine influence. And I don't think we would want to believe that in any case. John 16 verse 8. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit is at work in the world to convict the world. Concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit is working in the lives of the people of the world to cause them to recognize who He is. All right? Paul writes, Philippians 2, chapter 13. God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. God is working in us as Christians to mold us and to shape us to be more like Him. To desire to be more like Him. To shape the way we think. All right? That's a good thing. We're not free from the influence of the Holy Spirit. Praise the Lord. Right? Let me illustrate it like this. Right? Think about going to McDonald's to get a burger. Right? And you, so you're on your way to McDonald's and you remember that your friend recently told you that they tried the Grand Chicken Spicy Burger and it was amazing. Let me just say, I've tried it. It is hashtag just saying, right? Get the Grand Chicken Spicy Burger from Mackey D's. You should totally get it the next time you go. That's what they told you. Now, when you're deciding at McDonald's which burger to order, their advice may influence the decision you make. You're going to remember it. But you're still free to reject that recommendation and decide that, you know what, today I just want a quarter powder and cheese. Influence is different to coercion or causal determination. And so influence does not invalidate the freeness of our will. The fact that God influences our will does not invalidate our freeness. Good. Secondly, to genuinely have free will, there needs to be a real choice between genuine alternatives. In other words, it needs to be completely possible and feasible for me to choose either A or B. To order the Grand Chicken Spicy Burger or a Big Mac. Alright? If there is only a grand chicken spicy burger to choose from, I don't have a real choice. I went to a restaurant like this once, right? They served sirloin steak with garlic butter sauce and chips. That's what they served. There was nothing else on the menu. It was delicious. But there was no other option. And so I didn't really exercise any will in making a non-choice. I didn't have a choice. There were no alternatives. But, so there needs to be some alternatives, but they don't need to be all alternatives. Let's understand this. Let's go back to McDonald's again. When I'm there, I can choose to order anything I want from the menu at McDonald's. But McDonald's is not the only way to make a hamburger. And the McDonald's that I visit in Sakai or in Plumstead is not the only McDonald's in the world. And there are burgers at different McDonald's and different places that have different burgers to the ones I'm able to order. But I still have genuine free will to choose from the selection at the McDonald's that I get to visit right essentially what we're saying here is that biblical human free will is different from an idea of absolute free will biblically speaking we have free will because we can make choices that are not coerced they're not causally determined and they're made between genuine alternatives and if we can make choices like that those conditions are sufficient to describe our will as free that makes sense Okay? Hope you're with me here. If you are, good job. You made it through the first section. Okay? We're 12 minutes in. Well done. Stop and reflect. If you need to, if you need a pause of the video, just make sure you've got it all. Right? Make sure that you've got, we've got the caveat about cognitive dissonance. We recognize this is going to be a little dis- uh, uncomfortable for us. We, we remember the difference between God's preservation and His government and His providence. Right? we are got to focus more on His government. Uh, We remember the difference between human free will and absolute free will. That's where we've gone so far. Okay, you're with us. Great stuff. Let's move on. Okay, our next step and our next stop is the most important of all. It's where we start to ground both of these ideas, God's providence, our free will. We've got to ground them in Scripture. It's where we establish that even if I battle and I can't quite seem to get these two halves to mesh together, I can clearly say that this is what Scripture teaches us. Okay, so let's let's look at a couple of the scriptures together, and and these scriptures they're like poles that we sink into the ground of our minds. Right, they're like the immovable in a setup of our cognitive distance. So we poured the concrete in. We made sure that these two things exist. And however, we now try and resolve the dissonance that we have between them, we make must make sure that we don't move either of these two poles. Okay, so let's start with God's providence. Two quick things I want you to note just about the scriptures that we're going to look at that relate to God's providence. Firstly, there are so many scriptures on the providence of God that even the, I think the seven or eight that I'm going to show you are only a sample of a much larger set. The providence of God is a massive teaching in scripture. You can't avoid it. You can't hope that it doesn't exist, that it's not really the case. God teaches us very clearly about His providence. We're going to see that. Secondly, I'm going to pick scriptures that cover the range of God's providence, from where His providence exists in preservation to His providence in government, because I believe it's critical for us to get a sense of how holistically the scripture speaks about God's providence. Okay, so... That's me setting you up. Let's jump into the scriptures. The first one we're going to look at. New Testament. Book of Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Here's what the author says. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. Jesus sustains all of creation. Every created thing. Human, animal, animal. Plant, God sustains it by his powerful word. Colossians 1.17 He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Apart from God's continual sustaining work, all things would cease to exist. Right, That's what he says, Colossians 1.17 Let's go Old Testament now. Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. Right, Nebuchadnezzar has been struck uh, by the Lord, judged by God. He comes through that period of judgment. It says this, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High. And I praised and honored him who lived forever, he lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's Nebuchadnezzar's confession about who God is. God does according to his own will in heaven and on earth. Okay, let's jump back. New Testament again book of Acts, Paul's preaching, right, in, in Athens, and he says this, he says, and he, God, has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God has determined for every nation on the face of the earth their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their land. He has determined." The affairs and the extent of nations. That's what Paul tells us. Psalms, back Old Testament. Psalm 135 verses 6 and 7. The author writes and he says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Who makes lightning for the rain. Who brings forth the wind from His storehouses. God controls the weather. That's what the psalmist says. And in case you think it's just a poem in the Psalms, Jesus says the same thing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45. He says, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. That's the Father. Jesus says God controls the weather. Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. We read this earlier. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city, and they conspired against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, and they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. God directs the course of individuals and groups to ensure that certain events happen. It's part of his providence. Finally, let's close with this one. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with his will. save this to last because it is so beautiful. All right. God works all things. See how inclusive that term is. He works all things in accordance with his own will and intentions. We you have a picture of how strongly scripture affirms the providence of God? Can you see how wide-ranging it is from the sustenance of all creation to His control over the weather, from His direction of the affairs of nations to the roles of individual people in individual moments? We must always affirm the providence of God. And we should take great encouragement from it, by the way. And that's a sermon for another day, but it's hugely encouraging to me to recognize how intimately involved God is with the world that we live in and live through day by day. The providence of God is grounded in the scriptures. There's no way to escape it. It's critically important. Okay, let's look at human free will. Right, this concept, it's not as wide-ranging as God's providence, and so we're going to be able to illustrate it a bit more succinctly. We're going to look just at four scriptures. The first one is a classic. Right, It's, In the garden, in the garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, says this from verses 15 to 17. The Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord commanded him saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. We remember this moment. This is a moment where Adam was given the free choice, right? He was put into the garden and God said, you can eat from anything. All of these different options, plenty of available alternatives. But don't eat from this tree. And we know that he had genuine choice because later on he chose to eat from that tree. Adam had free will. Eve had free will. 1 Chronicles 29, verse 9. Scripture deep in the heart of the Old Testament. It's about where David has prepared the the resources for Solomon to build the temple. Right? The, the temple where God gets worshipped in the nation of Israel. And, and so he's called the leaders together and he said, guys, will you join me in, in donating some of the stuff that you have so that we can build the temple? It says this, the people rejoiced at the willing response of their leaders for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. Right? I just want you to notice that. They had given freely and wholeheartedly. They were not coerced in the decisions that they made, even though the king was calling them. They weren't coerced. They gave freely. They gave out of their own free will as they had been asked. They had the option to refuse. Perhaps a more classic option, like, right? yeah, you know, just a, a climactic moment in the story of the people of Israel is at the end of the ministry of Joshua. Right? And Joshua gathers them all together in Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. And he says, Now, O Israel, I fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods that your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, and as for my house, we will serve the Lord. Choose this day who you will serve. It's a calling to a genuine choice. Will you follow the Lord? Will you be obedient? And you just need to give a, a cursory reading of the books of Kings and Chronicles to see, no, they did not. In the book of Judges. No, they failed horribly. Right? Genuine choice. Joshua does, The people don't Finally, let's go to the New Testament. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. These are the last verses in the Gospel of John. It says this, Now Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to all who would read his gospel. John says, these things are recorded so that you would see who God is, who Jesus is. And you would make the choice to believe in him. He doesn't say, believe this or uh, you'll be immediately condemned to hell. It's an invitation. It doesn't say there is no other option but to choose Jesus. He says, but I, I want you to choose him. It's your choice. And if you do, you'll have life. It's an invitation genuinely offered by God. There are many other verses we could have looked at, but I hope as we look at these verses, you'll be able to agree that God gives his creation free will in order to respond both to him and to the circumstances that we encounter in our lives. Another example is where Paul speaks to the Thessalonians and he says, don't um, reject prophecy. Don't reject prophecy and so displease the Spirit of God. Quench the Spirit of God. We have a choice in how we respond to the, the revelation of God given through prophecy. Alright. That's that those are the pillars. Alright, those are the poles we're now cemented in our mind. We believe that the providence of God is clearly taught in scripture. We believe that human free will is clearly taught in scripture. So how do we bring them together? This is the question we're all asking. All right, 25 minutes in, we're going to answer it. Okay. But we needed to do this groundwork, otherwise we would get to the wrong answer. We've understood what we mean by providence and free will. We've established that the scriptures affirm both of them. Let's reconcile them together. How does God remain sovereign and in control whilst we remain free and act in accordance with our own will? I'm going to offer a solution that involves two concepts, understanding two concepts. And each of these concepts could carry the majority of the answer in and of themselves. But as you view them together, they complement each other really nicely. The first of these concepts is called concurrence. Concurrence in theology is the idea that God acts in cooperation with his creation such that it is possible to truly describe the causation of an event from both a natural and a divine perspective. All right. And this is perhaps best displayed in nature because it's something that we now have some degree of understanding over. So we read earlier in Psalm 135 that he, God, makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth. Here God is depicted as controlling the origination and the movement of clouds. Now through scientific study, we know and understand that it's the transpiration and the evaporation of water that cause clouds. And that they then move because of changes in atmospheric pressure, which causes air to move from one area of pressure to another. And we call that wind. And it's 100% true to to say that this is how clouds are formed and how they move. But it is equally true to affirm that, as the psalm does, that God creates the clouds and He moves them according to His will. Concurrence describes the cooperation of God with His created universe. When things act in accordance with the way in which he has created them. Concurrence can also describe human activity. In Jeremiah chapter twenty-seven, God describes how he's going to use King Nebuchadnezzar as his servant, granting him conquest over a, a collection of nations. But Nebuchadnezzar is not a godly king. He's a pagan king. And when he and his advisors decide to attack various lands and nations, they have their own. Very secular reasons for doing so. And they sit together around their war table and someone offended him. And so he goes and decides to take out that nation. And this one's got good oil reserves, So he goes and decides to take out that nation. But God is able to say when he does that, he's acting as the Lord's servant. And he's even doing things that God has predicted in advance that he would do. Both of those causes are equally true. Nebuchadnezzar formed in his own mind with his advisors around his war table that they were going to invade this land. God foreordained that it was going to happen. This is perhaps most helpfully seen in God's interaction with Pharaoh in Egypt, right? in the story of the Exodus. And the text affirms multiple times for us, both that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And you can go and look, you'll find the references running from Exodus chapter 4 all the way through to Exodus chapter 14. And there's a lot. It happens multiple times over and over again. By recognizing the reality of concurrence, we can partly resolve our dissonance because we can affirm that even though two causes appear to be mutually exclusive, that need not necessarily be the case. God is able to cooperate with His creation In such a way that both the natural and the divine cause can be equally true. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And he says, So neither the one who plants, nor the one who waters or anything, but only God makes things grow. Because we are God's co-workers. We're in His service. And He is at work through us. And we do our bit and He does His bit. And it works together. In itself, concurrence affirms that our will can both be free and directed by God at the same time. Some of you may find that helpful. But you may recognize that where concurrence is deficient is that it is unable to explain how both causes can be equally true and real. And so to answer that question, we need to look at our second concept. And that concept is called God's middle knowledge. Excuse me. Middle knowledge is a term for a unique kind of knowledge. It is God's knowledge of the hypothetical. And it's different from his foreknowledge. Right? God's foreknowledge describes his ability to know everything that will happen. This is clearly taught in scripture. For example, Psalm 139, verse 6. You saw my unformed body, all my days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's God's foreknowledge. He knows everything that is going to happen. Middle knowledge is rather God's ability to know not just what does happen, in other words, what history will be in advance foreknowledge, but everything that might happen, what history never gets to be. That's what God's middle knowledge is. It's the knowledge of the hypothetical. It's the knowledge of the what ifs. What if you had decided to wake up late yesterday? What if you forgot to brush your teeth? What if you got stuck in traffic on the way to your Zoom meeting? What if you lost connection during your Zoom meeting? What if you wore work appropriate pants during your Zoom meeting? Right? God's middle knowledge is his ability to know every conditional, every possibility for every person's life from beginning to end. From creation to the second coming of Jesus. God knows it all. If God has this kind of knowledge, then He has the ability to create a world in which truly free, reasoning beings can exist. And He is able to fit every person into their place in history such that they're free, unimpeded choices. They always act in a way such that God's ultimate purposes are brought about. Stop and think about that for a moment. If God has this kind of knowledge, then he is able to create a world of truly free reasoning beings. And he is able to fit every person into their particular place in history such that by their free, unimpeded choices, they always act in such a way that God's ultimate purposes are brought about. That is amazing. That is a terrifying amount of knowledge. Not to mention the processing power that is required to even use that knowledge to develop that kind of system. Only an infinite mind could even comprehend that vastness of what that knowledge would look like. Never mind directed over a world of free creatures in order to operate in this way. So here's our question: Does God have this kind of knowledge? And to answer this question, we need to choose to infer from what the scriptures we read earlier already said. So let's take one example and let's see if God's middle knowledge is a reasonable inference to have. Remember we read in Acts chapter 4. We read that Herod and Pontius Pilate, they met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city of Jerusalem to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. And they did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. In this verse, the actions of Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the Jews are said to have been orchestrated by God. That God directed the interactions that Herod had with Pilate, that Herod had with Jesus. That he directed the interactions of Judas and the other apostles. Right? That he directed the interactions of Annas, of Caiaphas, of the Sanhedrin as they met with Jesus and interrogated him. Uh, that he directed the interactions of the Roman soldiers. That he directed the interactions of the Jewish people who just a few days beforehand had welcomed Jesus as a Messiah into their city crying Hosanna in the highest. And that he caused every interaction between this vast amount of people to work out in just such a way so that the plan that he had had from eternity past could come to completion just as he intended it to be. With every detail worked out according to his plan. Is it reasonable to infer that God had complete knowledge of all the possible unrealized actions and decisions made by this large group of people so that everything that happened could be said to be an expression of His will? Is that a reasonable inference? For me, it's easier to answer this in the negative. I find it impossible to comprehend how God could bring a plan birthed in eternity past Involving the developed lives of so many people all interacting together over decades. Because every decision that they've made throughout their life affects who they are and how they respond in those moments. And how God could bring those together over decades into the perfect realization of His will. After having little notice. I don't know how that's possible. So Yes. I believe it is cogent. I believe it is reasonable. I believe that the scriptures allow us to infer that God does indeed have little knowledge. That his his omniscience is so great that he is able to know every possible action and response for every person. And so when we take these two concepts of God's concurrence... And of the middle knowledge that he possesses. And we, we use them and they help us form the bridge between God's divine sovereignty and our free will. Let's wrap up. When we began, we asked the question, if God is fully sovereign, how can I be sure that my actions are meaning? That I'm not just a puppet in the matrix, someone pulling the strings. And if God determined my actions, how can I still be morally responsible for them? I hope that by the, having made it to the end with me now, you're able to recognize the fact that God's sovereignty, the fact that He is sovereign, that doesn't impinge on the free will that He gave us. That those two things coexist together. And that consequently, our actions do matter. They do have consequences. We're not just puppets acting out a predetermined script, And yet we also serve a God who knows the end from the beginning. Who knows all of the days of our lives before they even came into being. And all of the days that could have been that never were. I hope that as we've looked at God's providence, you've taken courage that no matter what we can go through, it'll never take our God by surprise. And that you remember, as Paul tells us, that in all things, whatever we might be going through, God is at work in the background. His purposes are being worked out for the good of those who love Him and who have been called according to His purpose. For those of you who'd like to dig a bit deeper I've right? put some links into the description below for some additional resources. Please go and check them out. They're really, really helpful um, and they dig a lot deeper into the subject that we just don't have the time to do now. But let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you are such a great God. You're such a great God that your providence is so extensive, Lord, and that you know the end from the beginning that you are aware of everything that happens and every possibility. And yet in your incredible omniscience, you have allowed us to operate with free, real free choice, real free will. I thank you, God, that you choose not to to forcibly just bend us, but you invite us. I bless you for that, Lord. And I pray for us uh, that as we, As we wrestle with this understanding, as we try and get our minds around this thing that is so big, God, I pray that we would be encouraged to know that we are in the hands of a God who knows the end from the beginning and who knows all the days of our life that are set up for us. I thank you, Lord, and we bless you. We pray, God, that you would release your spirit to be in us and to fill us afresh for the week that's ahead of us and we would carry your name into all the places that we go. And that people would see you, Jesus, in us. We ask this in your name, King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone. May the Lord bless you. It's been wonderful to be with you today. And I pray that God will be at work through you this week. Have a lovely rest of your day. Cheers. Bye.